give you a little overview of what we've covered each chapter. So if you have not been with us, this will enable you to catch up. And then we're going to look at chapter 6. So let's, uh, let's start in Revelation 1. And let's remember what's happening in chapter 1. John is on the Isle of Patmos. He's being exiled to this Mediterranean island because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And we see that in verse 1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him to show his servants of the things which must take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. Now John is on the island of Patmos and John has a vision and Christ appears to him and he says, I want you to write down this vision. And in verse 3, he says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. So John is to write down the things that Jesus tells him about things that are coming upon the earth that are going to affect the people who read this book. Now in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus, through the pen of John, gives instructions to seven churches of Asia Minor, a group of believers who live in seven different locales. And what Jesus tells John to write to these churches is that, number one, they're never to bow the knee to Caesar. To do that is to miss the kingdom of God. So, how did they bow the knee to Caesar in those days? They didn't actually just get down on the knees and bow and go like this. Uh, that usually happened through meals. Everybody in the Roman Empire attended banquets. Today a banquet something special, not another day. They had these meetings. Oftentimes they were connected with union meetings or guilds. And if you wanted to keep your job, you attended these union meetings that always included a meal and it included pouring out libations or sacrifices to Caesar and the Roman gods. And when you did that, you were making a proclamation that Caesar, the emperor of the universe, is Lord. And Jesus, in these two chapters, tells the churches never to do that. And uh, many of these people did it because uh, if you didn't do it, you could lose your job. So he says, don't do that. And the second thing he says is always remain faithful. Even if it's going to cost you your life. If they tell you to do that, don't do it. No matter what it costs. And it might cost you your life. But, if you remain faithful to the end, and even if it costs you your life, you will be guaranteed a place in the kingdom of God when it comes upon earth. So that's the basic message of chapters 2 and 3. Now chapters 4 and 5, John has a second vision. And in chapters 4 and 5, the scene switches. It switches from earth to heaven. And John, in this vision, he sees a throne and somebody sitting on it. And in the throne, this individual, presumably God, has a scroll in his hand. And this scroll has seven seals. So what I've done is I rolled up a scroll and I put seven seals on And in this scroll are the events that are going to come upon the earth that will affect this church. And there are some 
some things in this scroll that are going to happen way, way in the future when the kingdom of God comes on earth. And so he sees this scroll in the hand of God and one of the angels says, we can't find anybody who can open this scroll, who's worthy to open this scroll. And suddenly one of the elders said, well, look over there. There's somebody worthy. It's a lion of the tribe of Judah. It's the Messiah. Uh, from the tribe of Judah. He's worthy to open. And John said, and I turned and I looked and I saw a lamb. I didn't see any lion. I saw a lamb that was slain. And the reason that he's worthy to open this scroll is because he died. And uh, instead of bowing the knee to Caesar when he stood before Pilate, instead of begging for his life, he remained faithful. He alone is worthy to open this scroll, the Messiah, the Messiah who will die. So now we come to chapter 6. And this is where we're picking up today. Now look what it says. Verse 1. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice, like thunder, John, come over here and look at this. So what happens is that this Lamb, the Messiah, opens the first seal. And the first seal is broken. Now, I want you to notice something. That first seal is broken. The first seal is open, but the scroll is still closed. You see that? The first seal is broken, but the scroll is still closed. So what is on the inside is not revealed yet. What's going to have, what's going to, have to happen in order for this scroll to be open? All seven seals have to be broken. And the seventh seal is not broken to chapter 8. So we're really not going to find out what's inside of this scroll until we get to chapter 8. So he breaks the first seal. And the angel says, hey, come and look at this. And when he does, look what happened. I looked and behold a white horse. Right out from under that seal hopped a white horse. Now remember, this is a vision. Not literal. When you have dreams at night, don't you have crazy dreams? Well, visions are crazy. And when you wake up, if you can remember the dream, you try to make sense of it. Well, this has a lot of symbol in it, and it does have some sense to it. A horse jumped out, a white horse jumped out from behind that scroll. And he who sat on it had a bow, like a bow and arrow, and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, that scroll is not open. So what is going on here? Well, when these seals are broken, something just sort of pops out. And what you're doing is you're going to get a glimpse into what's inside the scroll. It's like going to the movies and you see a preview. And what we're going to do is we're going to get a little preview. A little thing hops out. A horse hops out. And that horse is sort of like a, one of the themes, one of the categories of things that are going to be found inside that scroll. But all we're getting right now is just a little glimpse of things that are going to come. So, these are things that are going to happen on the earth. And notice what John sees. He sees in the first breaking of the seal, and then the third and second, third, and fourth, he sees four horses and four horsemen on those horses. Now this is the first seal that's broken. 
I looked and behold a white horse, and that is uh, a charger, a horse that charges in the battle. And the person has a bow, which is he's armed. Some people say, but doesn't say any arrows. That doesn't matter. It's not the point. Don't take this thing literally. Oh, horse that charges, and the person on it has a bow. And also, so he's armed, and he has a crown. That means he's a king. And he goes out conquering and to conquer. And these horses represent the Roman Empire. And the people who sit on those horses represent the emperor. So the horses represent the Roman Empire, and the person on the horse represents the emperor. Now, very interestingly, in 85 AD, the emperor Domitian had a coin struck. This guy was always striking coins. Last week we learned about a coin. And on one side he had a picture of himself. On a horse. With a bow. And a crown on his head. Now, when John has this vision, who do you think he thinks of when he sees this vision? The emperor. The Roman Empire. This is the horse of conquest. The horse of war. Rome would go in and they would conquer one nation after another. That's how they became an empire. You're not an empire. The United States isn't an empire. We're a nation. An empire is a nation that goes and conquers one nation after another. Remember Great Britain did that, didn't they? They had colonies all over. They were an empire. Rome was an empire. It became an empire by conquering other nations. Now look at the second thing. Second seal, verse 3. And when he opened the second seal, the living creature said, Come and see. So now we open the second seal. See if we can tear that one open. These things are not easy to open. I'm not authorized to open this thing. It's hard for me to do it. Okay, now I've just broken the second seal. Is the scroll open yet? No. But look what happens. Something pops out. Verse 4. Another horse. Fiery red, representing blood, bloodshed, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. And that people should kill one another. And there was given him a great sword. So here is bloodshed. Every time there's war, there is bloodshed. Now, not only does he go out and conquer, it says he takes peace from the earth. Now, this is the amazing thing. Rome, when they went out and conquered, they said, we're bringing peace to the earth. But in reality, what were they doing? Taking peace from the earth. They claimed, there was a concept called the Pax Romana, which was Roman peace, universal peace throughout the whole Roman Empire. But the way they brought that peace was they would go in to the edge of a nation. I've told you this before, but... For those of you who were not here, it's important that you know this. They would go to the edge of the nation's boundary, and they would say, We come bringing peace! Welcome us! And we will guarantee you peace, that your neighbors will not invade you. 
And if that nation didn't welcome them, they brought peace, but they brought it with a sword at the cost of bloodshed. And it says then in verse 4 that people killed one another. Because when that happened, guess what? Some within that conquered nation sided with Rome, and some resisted Rome's invasion. They resisted those occupation troops. For example, in Palestine, Rome took over Palestine, where the Jews lived. Were the Jews all happy about that? Oh, we love occupation troops. No, there was a group called the Zealots, and they rose up, and there was a group called the Sicarii, who were the assassins, and they would go into great big crowds, like, say, during celebrations, and they would just walk up when there was a big crowd, and they had these big daggers, and they would walk up to somebody they didn't like, one of those Roman soldiers or Roman officials, or maybe even one of their own Jewish officials, who had sided with Rome, and they would just go. They'd walk away, and a few seconds later, that person would tumble over. And so there was there people killing each other. People who sided with Rome, people who didn't side with Rome. And so that's what you have happening in this situation. This is sort of like civil war going on. It just happens that way. Uh, just think what's happened when, uh, when we went to Iraq. Now, we came because we wanted to bring freedom to Iraq. We wanted to rid that country of Saddam Hussein and this dictatorial rule. But in order to do that, guess what? There was bloodshed. And not only that, there were some people who welcomed us and sided with us. And there were others in Iraq who didn't side with us. And guess what ended up happening in Iraq? There was sectarian violence. There was civil war within Iraq. That's what's happening here. They would invade a country, and then the people would side with one side or another, and there would be war. And that's what he says is happening here. And there was given him a great sword. And this is a great big, wide sword. And it was called a Machaira. And the emperor wielded that sword and controlled those lands that he had invaded. Now look at verse number five. Verse number five. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. And I looked. And behold, a black horse. And he that sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And so now we break the third seal. And with third third seal, out popped another horse. And this horse is a black horse. And he who's riding on the horse, the emperor, has a pale pair of scales in his hands, not the scales of justice. Don't think of those kind of scales. Scales that you use to weigh a product, a commodity. You go in, you buy a pound of beans, you put them on a scale. This horse represents economic oppression. This horse uh, represents inflation. This horse represents starvation. Rome would go in and then they would strip Basically, stripped that country of all their resources. And the people basically starved. And that's what you have in this verse. Look what it says in verse 6. It says, And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Now, a quart of wheat was what an average human being ate in a day. And three quarts of grain was what an average 
let's say cow or uh, livestock ate in a day. And guess how much it cost? A day's food cost a denarius, which was a day's wage. Now let's say you make $50,000 a year, and that's $1,000 a week, and that's a couple hundred dollars, $150 a day, and just for you to eat, one day it's going to cost you everything you make. That means you couldn't put the heat on in the house this week. You couldn't put gas in your car this week if we bring it up to date. So what you have is for a small amount of product, there's a big cost, and that's called inflation, isn't it? When price gets out of hand, and so Rome would come in and people were literally starving to death. And they'd come in, and if you were a farmer and had 50 acres, they'd take your 50 acres. And uh, you'd still have to work the ground, and they'd give you minimum wage in denarius a day. It was your land, but they took it. And then all the profits from that land, those crops, sold in the marketplace, and all that money went straight to Rome. And it went right into the coffers of the emperor. And then it trickled down. Through the Senate. Through the military. And it was distributed that way. Just like our government distributes stuff. And if you were down in the bottom, guess what you got? One denarius. And all that could do is feed you or the horse. Who do you think you want to feed? I think I'd feed myself. So this is economic instability. This is famine. That's the black horse is famine. Inflation. Uh, high prices, low wages. Scarcity. And then that angel says at the end of verse 6, but don't harm the oil and wine. <clears throat> so what in the world does that mean? Don't harm the oil and wine. A very hard area right there. But one of the ways that Rome, one of the crops that Rome really made money on, it just poured money into the coffers of the Roman Empire, was olive oil crops. And the olive crops and the grape crops. And that brought a lot of money into the Roman Empire, but it didn't bring any money into the port, for the poor. And so this is inflation. This is scarcity. And that's what you have happening here. Now look at uh, verse 7. Verse 7. Now look, we haven't gotten into the scroll yet. That just popped out. That's a preview of what you're going to see in the scroll. It's sort of an overview. Does that make sense? When we get into the details, we'll see what's happening. All these are, remember, being written to the seven churches. This is what they have to watch out for. Because guess what? If you want to live, and you want to eat, and you don't want to lose your job, you better bow the knee to Caesar. And that's what they're telling. That's what's happening in this vision. These are warnings to the seven churches to watch out because these are the things that you can expect. So, what should you do? Bow the knee to Caesar? No. Be willing to die for your faith. If you're doing that, guess what? Just as Jesus died and God raised him, he'll raise you. So this is the message that's going to be found here. Now look at verse 7. And when he opened the fourth seal, so let's open that one. We're getting there. I heard a voice. The voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. And so I looked, and behold, a pale horse. 
Greek word chloros, from which we get our word green. A yellowish green. It's the, uh, it's the color of death, the color of a, a cadaver. Uh, most commentators say this represents pestilence. So what you have is you have war, bloodshed, famine, inflation, scarcity, pestilence. And it says in verse 7, verse 8, And he who sat on it was called, what? Death. Verse 8. Thanatos. Death. The emperor was the agent of death. Remember, every one of these writers represents the emperor, and the emperor brings death. And Hades, verse 8, followed with him. Hades, the Greek god of death. Hades, the Greek god of death. The god of the underworld followed him, just grabbing a hold of the people. And power was given to him over a fourth of the earth, number one, to kill with the sword, with hunger, starvation, scarcity, with death, pestilence, and by the beast of the earth. The beast of the earth probably represents the Christians being thrown into the arena and lions eating them alive. So, we see that the Roman Empire and the emperor are agents of death, whether it's through war, famine, pestilence, or throwing the Christians into the lion's den. What is he saying? Is there's going to be a persecution. Things are going to get bad for you, you seven churches. Things are going to get bad for you. And when you don't bow the knee, guess what they're going to do? Throw you into the beast. Throw you into the lion's den. And you will be eaten Alive. Now that's an overview of what the seven churches had to look forward to. Now let me just say this. Those four horsemen, although they represent the Roman Empire and the Emperor, are still around. Every nation that exhibits some of these characteristics is an agent of death. And every nation in the world exhibits some of these characteristics. There's no nation in the world that doesn't exhibit some of these things. Some go to war, some conquer, sometimes there's inflation. It's all because of policy. It's calculated, it's a policy. And it just represents nations. And that's just the way it is. Okay? There are Christians today in some nations that are more like these these nations, there are nations in the world that are very in the world that are very much like these nations in some way, like Rome. And in those kinds of nations, guess what's happening to Christians? They're persecuted and they're being put to death, aren't they? So although this applies to the first century, it also applies to every century. Because there are other countries and kingdoms like this, and they're doing the same thing. So that's why, although this deals specifically with the seven churches. It has application for us today. 
important that we see that. Now look at verse number 9. We're going to come to the next seal. Then he opened the fifth seal. So we'll open that. We're getting there. This one's open. Is the scroll open yet? I have no idea. This is just a preview. Something popped out from under the, under the seal. Look what it said. Verse 9. I opened the fifth seal and I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they tell. Now, this fifth seal opens up and he sees these dead Christians. Now, here's the question we need to ask. Is this scene in verse 9, does it take place on earth or is it taking place in heaven? Now watch. Everything else that he's seen in this series is taking place where? On earth. This next scene in verse 12 where the seal is broken, he sees a great earthquake. You see that? Where's that going to take place? On earth. So where do you think maybe the fifth seal takes place? Is this an earthly scene or is it a heavenly scene? Now, we, there's a great deal of controversy. Okay? If it's a heavenly scene, then the word souls in verse 9, I saw under the altar souls, that represents a person's spirit that's left the body and now the soul has sort of floated up to heaven. And, if it's in heaven, that word altar, in verse 9, you see that? I saw under the altar the souls that had been slain. Would be the altar in the tabernacle in the heaven. I, suddenly his vision switches to a heavenly scene, and he sees God's tabernacle and the altar, and there are believers under that altar. Now that would be if it's a heavenly scene. If it's an earthly scene, then the word soul means as it usually does in the Bible, just people. Uh, oftentimes we think soul means soul. Because that's how we use it. But in the Bible, soul means being. People. 29 souls perished in the fire. What do we mean? 29 people perished in the fire. Now, if that's on earth, he's just talking about people, and then the altar would be on earth, and it would be the altar that's dedicated to Rome and Caesar and the Roman gods. Because when you went and had a meal, there was food that you were going to eat that had been sacrificed on an altar, a pagan altar in a temple, before you ate it. And now it's put before you, and you're to bow and say, Caesar is Lord. And altars where sacrifices take place. Where things are killed. Usually what's killed on an altar are animals. But here, there are people slain. Same word used in Jesus, the lamb was slain. I saw a lamb as slain. Same word there, slain. These are people who have been slain. First time it was used, Jesus was slain by Rome. Who are these people slain by? Rome. Maybe the altar is the pagan altar and they have been put to death. And guess where they are? Their bodies are laying right there. Feet of those pagan altars. Because they refuse to worship Caesar. So we have to decide whether that's an earthly vision or a heavenly vision. It's not that important, but I just want you to see that these passages are not easy to interpret. 
So these are martyred saints. Would you agree with that? Martyred saints. Now, why were they slain? What does it say in verse 9? Look at the end of verse 9. Number one, for the word of God, which means the gospel. They were slain for the gospel. They held true to God's word. And number two, they were slain in verse 9 for the testimony which they held. And their testimony was, Jesus is Lord. And that's what they were put to death for. So these are people who are martyred for their faith. Now look at verse 10. And they cried, these people cried, dead people, cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood? on those who dwell on the earth. Now, if this is a heavenly scene, that's the soul. Say, hey, Jesus, how long is it going to be before you take care of these people down there? If this is an earthly scene, these are the dead people saying, the dead people can't talk. Do you remember what God told Cain after he murdered his brother? After his brother was martyred for his faith? After Cain slew Abel, and Abel was martyred for his faith, God said, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. From the ground. Uh, was his voice literally crying from the ground? No, he was dead. But what he's saying is, you killed your brother, and one day there will be justice will be done. Your brother's voice is crying from the earth. So maybe that's what this means. One way or the other, there's a question. And the question is, what? How long? How long? Now, notice how they describe God. How long, O Lord? Some Bibles say, how long, Sovereign Lord? The word Lord there is the Greek word despotos, from which we get our word despot. How long, despot? That's how they call God. These people are calling God a despot. What is a despot? It's a ruler. It's a master. Uh, would you say that? Would you say that uh, Caesar was a despot? Yeah, he was a ruler and a master. But notice what kind of ruler God is. How long, O Lord? What? Holy and true. This is God's character. This is God's veracity. You can count on what God says. And what he does will always be right because it's holy. So we have a holy and a true master. And look what they ask for. They ask God, how long, in verse 10, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth, who are still living on the earth. Now, this is a statement about how long, O Lord, will you judge? When, when will you execute justice? That's basically what he said. When will you execute justice? When will justice be done? And second of all, when will you avenge our blood? When will, when will we get even? When will things be evened out? Now, he asked God that. When will you do that? Now, we get a lesson here. We're not to take matters into our own hands, are we? We're not to be vigilantes and take matters in our own hands and get things evened out. We can never get things evened out. Things are going to be evened out when? Anybody know when? How long? When's it going to be, Lord? When do you think things are going to get 
Right. When the Lord comes back. In fact, the only two times, the only other time those two words, judge and vengeance is used, or revenge is used, is over in Revelation 19. Let me show you that real quick. I think you'll find this in there. And we'll finish up. Look at Revelation 19. And look at verse uh, 1. After these things I heard a loud voice and a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to our God. Why is all that true? For true and righteous are his judgments because he's judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. People had a relationship with her. And he avenged her, avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. So there will be judgment and there will be vengeance and it all takes place when the Lord comes back and he judges the world. That's when things are going to even up and not be thwarted. So we're not, don't expect justice in our lifetime. And he's telling these people, don't expect justice. These things that I'm showing you are going to happen, and don't think things are going to get right anytime soon. Don't think that Rome's going to be overthrown anytime soon. Don't think that you know you're going to everything's going to even out anytime soon. It's not. That's not going to happen until the Lord returns. In the meantime, the struggle goes on. Is it still going on? Still going on. Do we experience these things? Yes, there are Christians in certain parts of the world that are being martyred for their faith while we speak. It's still going on. Will justice be done? No. Some of those dictators in those countries will last for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And then their sons will take over. And it just keeps going on and on and on. The struggle continues to go on and on. So look back at chapter 6 and look at verse 11. Then a white robe was given to each one of them. And we saw in chapters 2 and 3, this represents salvation. It was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until the number... How long are they to rest? Until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. This is not going to be a persecution that lasts just a few years. It's going to be a persecution that is going to take many more lives and maybe millions of lives, and it's still being done today. But he said, you don't have to worry. You're guaranteed I've given you the white robe, the robe of innocence, and you will inherit the kingdom of God, which probably he's talking about at the end of the age. Now look at verse 12. And I looked. And he opened the sixth seal. Now we're going to open the sixth seal. The sixth seal is open. And there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. And the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as fig trees dropped. It's like figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. And then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain and every island was moved 
out of its place. So now what happens is that after those last Christians are martyred and the death of the saints is completed, he opens this next seal and his vision jumps who knows how far into the future. But it jumps far into the future and he sees the judgment that's coming upon the earth. And he describes this judgment of how the believers are being avenged. And that's what verses 12 through 14 are all about. As earthquakes, sun darkened, all these different things that are happening. Now, what in the world does all this mean? What is, is it going to be a literal earthquake? Is literally the stars going to fall from the sky? Or are these just symbols? Is this symbolic language or literal language? What would you say? It's symbolic language. You can't mix. A vision is symbolic language. So you have to say, well, what does all this mean? Well, how Lindsay said, this is a nuclear holocaust. Well, that's not what it's talking about. John didn't know about nuclear weapons. It's just saying that God's going to judge, and guess what? When he judges, it's going to be what? It's going to be bad, and it's going to be exhaustive, and it's going to be total. When he judges, he's going to do it right. If you try to judge, guess what? You'll botch it up, won't you? So he's just talking about God's going to judge everybody. Everybody. And he says in verse 15 and 16, look who's going to be judged. The kings of the earth. That would be like the emperor and his, his subordinate kings, like King Herod, those kinds of kings. The kings of the earth. The great men. These would be people who rule his provinces. Maybe senators, Roman senators. These are all, this is all language that these people in the first century would have understood. Because this is language that, re- that relates to the Roman Empire. The commanders, that would be the rich men first in my Bible. The rich men, these are the social elites, the Roman social elites who don't have to do a day's work in order to live. They're wealthy. They're like the rich of the rich of the rich of the rich of the rich. You know those kinds of people. All they do is go to parties. Never work. Well, that's how 8% of the Roman Empire was. The rich people of Roman society. The commanders, that's the military leaders of over a thousand men or more, the equestrian class, very rich class of people. The mighty men, these would be the native elites, the people who work for Rome, but like uh, the high priest in Jerusalem who works for Rome, does his bidding, they're also rich. And every slave and every free man, every slave and everyone was able to buy himself out of slavery. When all this judgment came, they hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So, these are all people described here who have given their allegiance to the Roman Empire. They're the ones that are going to be judged. There's coming a day of judgment. There are governments that are corrupt and governments who do all kinds of things wrong and no one's exempt. And those who give their allegiance to these kinds of people and bow the knees to Caesar, whether it's in the first century or today, whoever Caesar is today, all those people from the top to the bottom are going to face the wrath of God. 
no one will be exempt that have given their allegiance to Caesar. And look at verse 17. They're crying out, Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. And then John asked a question. For the great day of His wrath has come. And who is able to stand? And the answer is what? No one who has given their allegiance to Caesar and the Roman Empire. But, are there some who haven't given their allegiance? Who are they? The people who remain faithful. And chapter 7 tells us about them. He says, oh, there are some there that are sealed. 12,000 from each tribe. And chapter tells us those people who are able to stand. Now, I want you to notice we've opened six seals. Is the scroll open yet? Do we know what's on the inside? That will not come until chapter 8 and verse 1. And here's what it says in 8.1. I'll just tell you. And the seventh seal was opened. And everyone in heaven went. Just a seal unfurled. And they saw what was inside. And everyone who went. And there was silence in heaven for a half hour. The rest was taken away. And they couldn't even speak once they saw what was inside. Hey, this is just a preview. You ain't seen nothing yet. That's what we'll pick up next week. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to try to understand this in some sensical way. Make sense out of it. And not in some fantastic way. Help us to, to take a minimalist approach. And get the gist of what's being said, said here. And apply it to our own lives. Help us, Lord. When we have those occasions to compromise and put someone or something or someone's interest or our own interest above Christ, not to do it. Help us to be faithful to thee and help us to take the lessons to these seven churches and apply them to our lives. Lord, we want to be those who are standing at the end. We want to be those who enter the kingdom of God. Christ, name, and pray.